Great to be here this morning. It's a good thing I'm, I'm, uh, I'm working towards not using notes so much because I'm sure they're going to be all the way over there pretty soon. It's kind of breezy this morning, so uh, uh, here we go. Boy, it's quite different than the last few days, isn't it? I don't mind that. It was getting a little much. And my AC unit's broken, so first world problems. Anyway, as we get started today, one of the things I wanted to do was lead us in a time of prayer. Um, of course, this last few weeks, there's, it's, COVID's kind of taken a back seat in the news uh, to the situation in Kamloops. Um, stuff that indigenous people have been saying for years, but now we have more proof. And why does it take this to get us to this point? Um, how does, how do people get to the point where taking people's children, uh, denying them their language, their culture, their way of living, how does that relate to the gospel? Well, it just doesn't. And so this morning, I want to lead us in a time of prayer. Um, this was written by Carmen Bokema, pastor at the Meeting House in MB Church in Oakville, Ontario. Let's pray. Jesus, our hearts are so heavy. Our hearts are heavy because lives were lost in an unjust way. Our hearts are heavy because lives were stolen and history has been stolen and it didn't need to be. We invite your spirit into this space where we don't have words. We're still processing and learning and grieving. Jesus, by your spirit, will you be so present. Be a presence of peace for our indigenous friends, neighbors, and family. Jesus, would you by your spirit move us as the church into a space of compassion, lament, and action? Would you be the one to reveal what our next steps need to be as we sit with this news that once again reminds us of a history in an ongoing system of abuse, of power, and racism? And we look to you to be the one that leads us. Hear our hearts cry that we long for it to be here on earth as it is in heaven. And we know that as people who follow you, our role is to be kingdom bringers where there is darkness and where there is evil. Equip us for that. To be light in dark places. We pray against and we renounce systems of evil that have existed for so long. Jesus, you are the one that leads. You lead us and we look to you in a space where we don't quite know what to do. Come and be very near in this moment, we pray. Amen. So last week I had a chance to read a book called 21 Things You Didn't Know About the Indian Act and quite honestly, I didn't know anything. I don't know about you, but I just didn't know anything about it. <clears throat> and it's disturbing reading. And it's short. <laughs> it's very short. 
it doesn't tell the whole story. I also had a chance to read through this morning a, a pamphlet put out by the Mennonite Church of Canada uh, in 2017 that outlines the history of Mennonite involvement from 1939 to 1990. And so it's not just the Catholic Church. It's many denominations. Whether directly involved or just silent. And that's got to change. So this morning I want us to turn to the book of Malachi. I don't know how to transition out of that other than just do it. The book of Malachi, we're going to be in this for the next eight weeks. And it's a burden, it's an oracle, it's a word of the Lord by the hand, in the hand of Malachi. In our Bibles, it's the last book of the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Bible, it's the last book of the second section, the Old Testament prophets. Uh, the prophets run from Joshua to Malachi, and then it starts the book of uh, writings with the Psalms. Uh, our Bibles have a very different order uh, than the Hebrew Bible. But Malachi, for us, closes the Old Testament. Malachi was the last of the writing prophets, but he was not the last Old Testament prophet. The last Old Testament prophet, technically, was John the Baptist. And we'll read about him in Malachi as well. The basic message of Malachi has to do with how we live out our faith in times of relative stability and peace. Malachi is speaking to the people of Israel about the time of Nehemiah, actually, after Nehemiah is done, probably a decade or so later. We're not really sure. There's no real historical marker on this other than the temple worship was restored. Um, Jerusalem was, was uh, settled and people were in their homes again. Their lives were settled. They had routines. There may be the odd irritant here or there, but overall things were fairly stable and settled. And the core message has to do with how do we live out our relationship with God, living out covenant love in community. It's the kind of environment we live in today uh, that, that has an impact on how we live out our faith. All the things Malachi deals with are things we deal with. Worship, giving, marriage, parenting, lots of things in here. Today we're going to look at the brief overall context, read through the whole book, and then we're going to look at the key issue that Malachi addresses. The root of everything is doubting the love of God. So I think I've already given you kind of a bit of the background. The people Malachi speaks to are not wayward. They're not overly rebellious. They're not falling into idolatry. They were simply stuck in religious routine, going to church, doing the sacrifices, showing up, but there was no heart in it. It was routine. It was religion without any real connection to God. 
the people were settling for good enough. Uh, if, you know, I'll go to church today, I'll give, uh, it's, it's, it's not my best lamb, actually. It's actually a bit lame in one leg, but that's good enough for the temple. It's good enough for God. Uh, we got potluck today. I'll bring my leftovers. <laughs> I won't bring anything really good to church. If it costs me, eh, I'll just skip it. This was the attitude that people were falling into. They got into a routine of religious routine without connecting with God. They were settling for good enough, as long as it didn't cost them too much, didn't get in the way of what they wanted to do with their lives. Religious routine was still a deep part of their culture, but that was about it. Going to church, giving something, helping here and there because you have to. It's the same struggle we have. These struggles are perennial. And so you may want to just simply listen today. I'm going to read through Malachi. It takes about 10 minutes, at least as I read. And so let's start. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet... I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called a wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel." A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table is to be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present thou those to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. For such a gift from your hand, will he show you favor? Any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. From the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered in my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, oh, what a weariness, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering? Shall I accept that from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. 
If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him is one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. The lips of the priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of God, the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and the wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your fathers, 
From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me and the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it's vain to serve God. What is the profit in keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Well, then those that feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great an awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. What a way to close the Old Testament. The first word often translated an oracle is better translated a burden. A massah, a weighty, urgent, disconcerting message from God for the people of God most often an evaluation of the current state of affairs in light of the law of Moses. And God has revealed his Best practices for living under his care and blessing. And the burden is a message that says things aren't going so well and things need to change. A burden. Massah. A word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's, I, I think the visual imagery is lost here in translation. A burden in the hand of Malachi he has to carry this. 
Literally, it reads, in the hand. And it's a burden because the hardest people in your life to confront are those you love the most. And God loves his people deeply. If you've heard the repeated phrases, God makes a declaration, the people question it. And then God provides the evidence. It kind of goes in a cycle through this letter. Actually, in the Hebrew uh, canon, there's only three chapters. Chapter four doesn't exist. It's not carved off as something separate. It's just one continuous thought. Actually, the whole thing is one continuous thought. That's why I think it's so good to read the whole thing. The whole book rests on, flows out of, as heavy as it is. Even as I was reading that, I was feeling the weight of this. But the whole book depends on the very first words out of God's mouth. This issue has to be settled before we can talk about anything else. How we live out our faith is directly related to how deeply we know God loves us. All other issues Malachi addresses, we can contribute to improving. You know, oh, you're, you're bringing bad sacrifices, I'll, I'll bring a better one. Uh, uh, I, I'm not speaking right about God. I, I, I can work on that. I, I can stop thinking that going to church is, is a wearisome bore and, and snort at it, verse 13 in chapter 1. I, I, can, I can work as, as a pastor to not be like the Levites that, that Malachi is talking to here. Uh, I, can, I can work on loving and being committed to my marriage. I, I can do a lot of this stuff, but the first thing I have to do, all of it is based on this. I have loved you says the Lord. But you say, how? All the others are issues because this one is an issue. This one is in question. This one is in doubt. This is the one the people are asking the deepest question about, how have you loved us? Prove it. Because life doesn't feel like you love me right now. Think, think, think about where the people were at. They, they, the prophecies of Isaiah, the prophecies of the, the pre-exilic and even the exilic prophets. God's going to restore us. God's going to bring us back to Israel. It's going to be great again. The temple's going to be even bigger and more beautiful and more glorious than ever. Uh, just read Ezekiel and, and wow, we're looking forward to this. And you get to like Haggai and he's like, look at this pathetic temple we're building here. Is it Nothing. And Nehemiah comes along and he's like, man, the place is broken down. It's a, it's a wreck. And people have been living for generations in, in, in a destroyed city. When they heard all these great prophecies of how awesome it was going to be when God brought them back to ex from exile. And so they're doubting God's love. You know, they're probably not saying this out loud. There's a lot of things we believe we don't say out loud. We we live it out, but we don't say it. We would never question God's love. How could you dare question God's love? But when you get under some of the pain in your life and the, and the dis disappointments and, and the unmet expectations, this question's there. God, do you really love me?
So God gives some evidence. And the evidence he gives here makes us scratch our heads a lot. Why are we talking about two brothers that, from Malachi's perspective, lived 2,000 years ago, Jacob and Esau? Well, this works on two levels. One, it takes them back to the very beginning and it points to their current reality. Jacob and Esau, Edom, and Israel. But God's point here, first of all, love and hate here are not an issue of emotions, but of election and covenant relationship. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Jacob was chosen even in the womb to be the one who would inherit the Abrahamic covenant, to to be the one through whom God would work his redemption for all humanity and all nations. And the point is, and and, and I find this fascinating, all through uh, Genesis, really, um, it's not the firstborn. It's not the strongest. All through Scripture, actually, it's it's not the really good guy. It's not the strongest guy that God chooses to work through. It's usually the weakest and the most messed up. And God makes his point over and over in Deuteronomy. The point is God chooses the least likely. Jacob is no poster boy for Israel. He's he's a deceiver. He's a swindler. (laughs) He's a backstabber. Now, David's not a poster boy either. Unless you just read Chronicles, then all his whole reputation's cleaned up. The point is, God doesn't choose us based on how much we can contribute, but on how obvious it will be that he has worked. God doesn't choose us based on how much we can contribute, but on how obvious it will be that he has acted. The real surprise and the real struggle and the real thing that should drive us to worship and wonder is not the judgment of God against sinful humanity, but that God has committed to love and pursue reconciliation and enduring relationship with people. Being the people of God, whether it's Israel or a follower of Jesus today, should not cause us to feel privileged or superior to others, but to be deeply humbled and thankful that God has worked. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is his saving love for me. I'm going to sing that at the conclusion. God's love for us should lead us to deep, deep humility and worship. The declaration, verse 2, I have loved you, is true. And it's in the, in the Hebrew, it's in the perfect tense. So that means not only have I loved you past tense, but I love you continually and into the future. I am committed to you. I will always love you. But the question is also real. 
The first question from the hearts of the people, and they probably didn't say it in these words, this is Malachi's evaluation of their words, our circumstances and the stuff of light maybe don't support the truth of God's first declaration. We probably won't say it out loud. We probably won't admit it to anyone. But deep down, there's a sense of abandonment by God in the stuff you have been facing in your life. Does God still care? And if he does, why is life so hard and painful? And why are there things that I'm deeply struggling with? And the question is real, and we dare not pass over the depth of that question with an easy Sunday school answer. Peter Adam in his commentary says, if we assess God's love by how he meets our needs, then our greedy hearts will always find him wanting. If we assess God's love by his mercy in saving us from death, judgment, and hell that we by nature and by our actions deserve, then we will constantly marvel at his amazing love and grace. So actually, maybe the Sunday school answer is what we really need in the midst of our pain. And we need to sing, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. If we doubt God's commitment to his covenant love for us, then following him and aligning our lives and giving our best and honoring our commitments and worship Worshiping deeply doesn't work. It becomes a chore. And all that Malachi is going to challenge us with in the rest of the book flows out of this core doubt of God's love for us. Because just, just think about it. If, if this is deeply true and, and we have embraced the fact that God loves us deeply, then a life of worship and obedience flows out of that. All the way through the Bible, the key thing is not that we obey God to get God's love, but that we obey God because he already loves us and has committed himself to us and has called us out and has saved us and has worked to bring us to himself. God has declared, I love you. Listen to some of these words from the New Testament. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 1 John 4, 9-12. Ephesians. Chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We could go on. God repeatedly throughout the Old Testament told Israel that his choice of them had nothing to do with who they were or what they did but that he actually loved them in spite of all that they did and how they had failed. Deuteronomy, it says it over and over, don't think that I love you and I have chosen you because you're so awesome. You're a stubborn, hard-hearted people and you completely mess it up all the time. But I'm committed to you. God's love and commitment to them as his people is based solely on who he is. They didn't deserve it. They didn't earn it. God repeatedly tells us that salvation through Jesus Christ has nothing to do with who we are or what we do or what we bring to the table. It is based solely and completely on God's love and his commitment to us. We don't deserve it and we can't earn it. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer in her commentary says this, this opening passage furnishes the leading motif for the book of Malachi. The Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of all powers, seen and unseen in heaven and on earth, never abandons the burden of his love for his people. God loves you. It's an unending Enduring love. He will never leave us nor forsake us. There's two key phrases in the book of Malachi. One, I have loved you. Two, I don't change. God's love for us never changes. The old hymn says, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray, and find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Lord, when we read through Scripture, we find these great powerful truths that you love us, you continue to love us, you will always love us, you will always pursue us. And that is so needed for us to move forward as your people. Thank you for your committed love for us. And Lord, as as we encounter the message of Malachi over the next eight weeks, as, as much of a burden as it is, because this is, this is a book of 
prophecy and prophecy isn't there to give us like a roadmap to the future. A prophecy is there to challenge us to come back to that loving, committed relationship with God and to live it out no matter what's going on around us. Lord, would you point to all the times in our lives where your love for us has been shown over and over. And will you most importantly impress on us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A greater love has no one than this than a man lay down his life for his friend and Jesus lays down his life for his sheep. And so, Lord, as we contemplate this first declaration, may we make this our memory verse this week. I have loved you, says the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.